0: All right, chapter, uh, chapter 6 of Mark, we'll be reading from verse 7 through verse 13. I'll pray, or I'll read and then I'll pray. Verse 7. And he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two, and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. And he charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff no bread, no bag, no money, and their belts, but to, to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. And he said to them, Whenever you go into a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you, and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out, and they proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick, and they healed them. Let's pray. Jesus, this morning, I... uh, I believe that you could, um, you can heal broken hearts, that you could transform minds and set souls right. I, Lord, trust in your power to do this, and I pray, God, that um, every heart in here, whether it believes in you or not, every heart in here would, would just understand the weight of the authority of Jesus, how you have claim over everything in this city how you have laid claim over everything that is created. And we ask, God, that you would be exalted today. I pray, I, Lord, I'm so humbled even by this teaching, and uh, I ask, God, that you would communicate, that, Holy Spirit, that you would be the communicator today to people's hearts and their minds, God. I ask, God, that those that, are, that follow you here and live in this city would be challenged today to live in this city for the glory of Jesus and the gospel of Jesus. And I pray if those that live in this area that are just asleep to the fact that you're calling people to yourself, that you would wake them up, Lord. We love you, and we thank you, and we submit under the power of your word, would you anoint my mind and my heart and my lips now to proclaim your truth. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Okay, so the two things that we've been talking about in the book of Mark, maybe this fan too, huh? I never liked those white fans, they don't really match, so I don't like them there. Anyway, Um, all right, so the last several weeks, since we started the book of Mark, we started back in January, since we started, the the themes, the two themes in the story, the, 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 the story arc of the book of Mark have been this, who is the real Jesus? And we've been discussing that from the very beginning, who is this real Jesus, and what does it look like to follow him? What does it look like to follow this Jesus? So who he is, who is he really, and then what does it look like to really follow him? And the book of Mark begins like this the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So, at the very beginning, everyone in the audience, the readers know, in the book of Mark, it's all about Jesus. He's the Son of God. And it goes on to say in verse 14 now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God. Jesus came into Galilee, he's proclaiming, embodying, living the gospel of God, and saying this the time is fulfilled, the time is at hand, the kingdom of God is here, it's near, it's in me repent and believe in the gospel. So it's about Jesus and what he's come to do and then his message to repent and people to believe in him and to believe in the gospel and what he has come to do. And from that moment, he began to call people to follow him. He had started to call people to repent and to follow him, to believe in the gospel and to follow him. And he called fishermen and he called tax collectors and he called sinners and he called outcasts and they started to follow him. And he had a tight circle of 12 men around them, him and, he fo- and they followed Jesus. And up to this point, they have simply followed and observed Jesus. They have watched Jesus. They have seen him display his power they have seen Jesus display his authority and his compassion in calming a storm, which was not fun at the moment, but ended up being really cool. A storm was going to overtake the boat. They thought they were going to die. They actually turned to Jesus and said, Jesus, do you not care that we're drowning? We are dying. And Jesus calms the storm. And they were there to witness it. They had no hand in it. They were actually didn't even believe it was going on. After Jesus calmed the storm, he, they looked at Jesus and said, who is this that can talk to storms. Who are you? We thought we knew you, but obviously we have no clue who you are. Who are you that calms storms? And they got to observe Jesus as he went to the other side of the lake, and he steps off the boat, and it doesn't say the disciples followed him at this point. Jesus steps off the boat, goes into the caves, and there's a naked demoniac who has a legion, 5,000 demons in this man. And they probably heard the wailing and the screeching, and who are you? And Jesus saying, come out of that man. And then they watched as these demons left this man, entered pigs, and jumped off to their death. They saw all of this. They just observed all this. They absorbed all of this. And they saw as this woman was healed just by touching his garment. And they saw Jesus turned around and like, who touched me? And then as they were leaned up against Jesus, they're like, well, I am. And I think everyone else is touching you as well what do you mean? Like, no, somebody touched me and I felt power leave me. So they got to watch this happen and the kingdom of God unfold this way. They actually saw Jesus touch a leper. You don't touch lepers. That was outside the social boundaries. You didn't do that. They saw Jesus touch a leper and then heal a leper. They saw Jesus heal this man with a withered hand in the synagogue on Sabbath when they knew, and he knew, that he would be busted by the religious authorities. But Jesus did it anyway. They saw all of this. And they also saw him being rejected by his hometown. But remember when Jesus called these disciples to himself. He was doing that so he could send them out. He said this to the fishermen when he called them in Mark chapter 1 follow me, Jesus said, and I will make you become fishers of men. I will send you out as fishers of men. You come to me, and I'm going to send you out as fishers of men. And in Mark chapter 3, it says this, when he appointed the 12. And Jesus appointed 12 so that they might be with him, observe him, watch him, absorb him, and he might send them out to preach. So this, is, this was always the goal when Jesus called these disciples. Hey, follow me, and I will send you out. Follow me, and I will give you power and authority to do this, to do this ministry in my name. And what's been the main storyline of Mark so far has been Jesus. And this is, my, this is why I love going to the book of Mark. It's all about Jesus. So that when I come to this section here, and we stopped here to read this, this is where it gets a little difficult even for me. Because you kind of almost leave the realm of that into, now what do we do? Now, I like application, but I love to talk about Jesus. So as we move into this, the storyline has been Jesus, and the disciples have been watching and following Jesus. And rather than being partners in his mission, they have been companions and spectators and sometimes a privileged private audience, like Peter, James, and John, when Jesus invited them in when he was going to heal the girl that died. And he said, little girl, wake up. And the girl rose from the dead. But now, here, they become the focus. Here, they become the focus because Jesus now, they've been extras rather than actors in the proclamation of the kingdom of God. Now, Jesus sends them out. And this is how it often goes. You begin to follow Jesus. Maybe you have started to follow Jesus in the last six months. Maybe you have Follow Jesus way before then. You start walking with Jesus, and you observe Jesus, and obey Jesus, and learn that you can trust in Him, even in the darkest times, like when they went through that storm. Then there's a time, not in your own timing either, in God's timing, where He says, now open your mouth and proclaim the gospel. This sometimes makes us nervous, especially if you live in San Francisco, especially if you live in the Bay Area. There are certain times where you're like, well, I'll just live my Christian life out in private and go to my little church in private, but when you tell me to talk about Jesus, there's no way I can do that without getting beat up. There's no way I can do that without looking so archaic and old-fashioned, without them automatically trying to nail my political party and what I believe about this and what I believe about that. There's no way I'm going to start to proclaim Jesus. I'll go to church. I won't proclaim him, though. And there is a time when Jesus goes, now open your mouth and proclaim me. Open your mouth and now talk about, speak the gospel. Gossip the gospel. Proclaim the gospel. And we're like, well, no, 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 I don't do that. I'm way more subversive than that. I don't really do that. There is a time when God, when Jesus will call us to do that. And it's not your timing. It's not like, well, after I get my master's in divinity, then I will. After I memorize, after I actually want to read through the whole Bible, Genesis to Revelation, and I'm stuck somewhere in Leviticus for the last four years, but once I get through it, once I get through that, then I will start to talk about it. Then I'll have something to talk about. Or when I memorize the Bible song, the Genesis, I don't even know the song, you know, the, the whole, all the books of the Bible song. Then I will start to proclaim the gospel, but not until then. And Jesus sends them out here. And this is really not the best of times because what we've seen is it's kind of almost premature that Jesus would send them out right now. Up to this point, their, their um, action, the disciples' action with, when following Jesus hasn't been really reassuring. They've doubted Jesus. They've questioned Jesus. And through the rest of the book, the disciples will be marked by misunderstanding Jesus. But he still sends them out. And the sending of these particular individuals testifies that the fulfillment of the Word of God depends not on the perfection or merit of the missionaries, but on the authoritative call and the equipping of Jesus. It's His work. And He sends them out even when you and I don't think they're ready. They probably don't think they're ready. But Jesus goes, now you're ready. They're not really entirely ready, but they are ready in some way to start to apply what they've been learning. These guys are still messed up. They don't completely get it, but they get enough. They've seen enough, and Jesus sends them out. And when he sends his disciples out, he sends them out with authority, dependency, and ministry. He sends these disciples out with authority, and then dependency and ministry. So we'll look at these three things today. So the first thing he sends them out with is authority. In verse 7, it says that he sends out the twelve in pairs, two by two. So they have a friend. So they have a buddy. And he gives them authority over unclean spirits. He gives them authority. Why did Jesus send them out with authority? Why is this such a big deal? If you come to the end of the book of Matthew in chapter 28, verses 18 and 19, Jesus says the same thing there. All authority, the Greek word there is exousia, all authority has been given to me. Go, therefore, because I have this authority, I want you to go in my name. Why is this authority so important? And the reason why authority is so important is because these believers being sent out, listen, these believers would encounter opposition. They would encounter opposition from every side. We just left the story last week of Jesus having opposition in his hometown. They would enter into opposition. Actually, this is another Mark sandwich, if you remember us talking about sandwiches in Mark's gospel. It's actually a sandwich. He sends them out, and then in the middle of the sandwich, he talks about John the Baptist being beheaded. And then he comes back to the disciples coming back. He sets the frame. Mark sets the frame of the disciples being sent out in the middle of John the Baptist being beheaded as the first evangelist in the gospel you will encounter opposition. If you are a follower of Jesus, you will encounter opposition. And our prayer, our hope, is that you wouldn't encounter opposition because you're being stupid or being obnoxious, but that you would encounter opposition because of the gospel, because you're embodying and living and loving this city and sharing with it the gospel. And in that, you will encounter opposition. And because they would encounter opposition... He sends them out with authority. I don't know if you know this yet, but the real Jesus, Christianity and Christian evangelism is not popular. Even the word evangelism is not popular. Jesus says, I am sending you out, and I think this is one of the least comforting things Jesus said, I am sending you out like lambs among wolves. like, wait, that's not really reassuring. That doesn't help me at all. That's not a good devotional in the morning. Like, Lord, I seen a word. Okay, here's your word. You're a lamb. You're going to wolves. Be blessed, you know? Like, I, that's not, I don't feel that one, Lord. I need something more. This, you will, and I will, if you follow Jesus, will encounter some level of opposition. Because the message of Jesus, the real Jesus, is not very popular. The message is not simply love, peace, and forgiveness. It is that, but it's not all that. That's easy to tell people. God loves you. We need to live in peace. We should forgive one another. That's easy to say. But the Christian message is more than that. The Christian message in evangelism, telling the world about Jesus, is more. Let me quote J.I. Packer. He says this. He writes this. Evangelism means presenting Christ Jesus and his work in relation to the needs of fallen men and women who are without God as father And under the wrath of God as judge, evangelism means presenting Christ Jesus to them as their only hope in this world or the next. Evangelism means exhorting sinners to accept Christ Jesus as their Savior, recognizing that in the most final and far-reaching sense, they are lost without him. Did you notice a couple hot-button words there? Wrath of God. Don't lead with that one. That's not a good lead-in to evangelism. Or sinner. Those two words or two phrases aren't really popular. The majority of people inside the church and outside the church don't like to hear that they need a savior. That offends our deepest sense of self-sufficiency. I am self-sufficient. I pay my own bills. I could drive myself to the store. I am self-sufficient. I don't need a savior. But the message of Jesus can be very offensive. People, all people, don't love the word repent and sinner. And what you will hear when you begin to evangelize and you say, you know what? God loves you. And the, and the way that God has shown his love to us is that when we were still in our sins and the wrath of God was upon us, Jesus died for our sins to remove our guilt, our shame, and our sin, and that we can be with God because of what Christ has done for us on the cross. Repent and believe in the gospel. They will say, people will say, I've heard it said, who are you to tell me? What authority are you to tell me that I need a savior? Who makes you the king? Who makes you that person that says, I need this or I need that? Who lets, who, Who gave you the authority to tell me that I'm a sinner? Where do you come off? And this is why it's so important to understand that Jesus sends his followers out with authority. The rule and the reign and the authority of Jesus trumps all other authority claims. Even when people think they have authority over their own lives, like I'm my own master, the power of self, this is not true. The Bible teaches that Jesus has absolute claim on everything created because he created it. That word exousia in Greek, authority, exousia in the Greek, means, it denotes two different words. It means right and might. Jesus has all the right, and Jesus has all the might. Jesus has all the right over everything created because he is creator, and it's all his. Colossians 1 says, For by him all things were created. In heaven... And on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. He created all things, everything was created for him. Jesus is on mission to redeem back the created world because it's his. And he has the power to do so because he has all the might over everything created. This has been shown in Mark so far. His authority over the demonic by casting out demons. His authority over sickness by healing. His authority over nature by telling nature what to do. And his authority over sin by forgiving sin. Jesus has all exousia, all authority. So, as Jesus' representatives, when we proclaim the gospel and call people to repent, it's not me who says you need a savior. It's not me who wants his rightful claim on your life. It's not me who died for you. It's not me who promises to never leave you or forsake you. It's Jesus. It's his authority. Jesus is rightfully laying his claim on the created world because he is the only one, and this is important to understand, why is Jesus doing this? Because he is the only one who can redeem humanity, control humanity without destroying humanity. The authority given to the 12 is the authority to act in Jesus' name, to proclaim the gospel and to embody the gospel. They needed authority. They were calling people to what God had already claimed on their lives. Jesus' authority and claim on the entire world should both humble us and embolden us. It should humble us because God is calling people to repent. Not me, I'm not calling you to repent. I'm not saying, hey, you better repent because it's all about me and it's all up to me. It's God is calling people to repent. And we can't leave this out. This is actually the really cool part of this. They have supernatural authority, authority over demons and sicknesses. And how was this? It wasn't formulaic. Jesus did this in so many different ways. He healed in so many different ways by speaking, by touching, by just, speak, by just pointing, by telling somebody to take up their mat and go home. I mean, he healed in so many different ways. So you can imagine as they were sent out, two by two, they go into a village, they go into a town, they go into a city, and they meet someone who has a demon, their first one. Okay, okay, what do we do? What did we do? What did Jesus do? We well, didn't pop his collar, roll up his sleeves, say a magic chant. And they could stand there, and I would imagine they are so afraid. The first time that I ever encountered somebody that had demonic activity going on, I was scared. You can imagine they were freaking out. They stood back, and whether they said, and this is what it was like an axe, in Jesus' name, come out of that person. And the demon obeyed. And you can imagine, they're actually later on they come back in another, in another um, gospel. It says they were excited that the demons were subject to their name. They were stoked that we said demons leave and demons left, Jesus. This girl had a fever and I healed her. Like all these things they got so excited about. Jesus sent them out with supernatural authority. With supernatural power. And this power came not in what they did but in the person of Jesus that's where the power was, in the person of Jesus. So they sent him out. He sent him out with authority because Christ is claiming his authority on everything created, everything created, and they were sent out in his power. But next thing, look at what it says. He sends them out in dependency. He sends them out. This is a little odd, okay? He sends them out totally dependent. Look at verse 8. It says, he said, take nothing for your journey except a staff and no bread and no bag and no money in their belts but to wear sandals one pair and not two tunics take one tunic and he said to them whenever you enter a house stay there until you depart from that region and if any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you when you leave shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them and they went out and they proclaimed that people should repent okay let's make this pretty practical here how did jesus send them out he sends them out with virtually nothing. He said, don't take a carry-on, no chains of clothes, no blankies, no money, no travel snacks, all your favorite things about road trips. Don't take any of that. Don't load up your MP3 player with new songs. Don't do anything like that. Just take what you need right now and go. And I want you to go into the town or a city, and I want you to stay there and live off the hospitality of that city and be dependent upon their Kindness. What Jesus is saying is this, when I send you to a city, don't live outside the city and commute in and preach to people, live among them, live with them. Don't live outside where it's maybe more comfortable, maybe where it's more safe, live among them, live right in the midst of them, don't live in the suburbs and commute into the city. One of the things that people, when we knew that we were going to be moving to San Francisco, they're like, you should live way outside of town because it's outside of San Francisco and it's not in San Francisco. And it's cheaper and it's cleaner and there's places to park. <laughs> and that's what our family, some of our family said, some other people that, uh, that told us that's what we should do when we move here. And uh, our reply was just a couple of different replies. The first one was we want to live there because it is the coolest city in the world. We want to live there But the next thing we said is, what does that communicate? What does that communicate when I'm commuting in? I'm not saying there's anything wrong with living outside of San Francisco. We can have that discussion maybe later. But what does that communicate? I'm here. I'm preaching the gospel. San Francisco, this, that, this, that. Do you live here? Well, no. Why are you here talking to us? Well, because this city needs to repent and follow Jesus. But, you know, I'm going to do that at a distance. Because I don't want, I can't, I can't live with this, all this, like, it's really hard to live in the city. And I'm communicating to people, it's hard to be a Christian in San Francisco, therefore don't live in San Francisco. Jesus says, go in, go right into the middle of the city, right in the middle of town, and live among them. And live off of there, be dependent upon their hospitality. Be dependent upon the place you go. This is, this is pretty radical, I don't want you to stay outside the city with all your stuff, with your, your bag of shoes and your, and your clothes and your money and your staffs and all this stuff and then show up in the middle of the city and then like give a message and then leave. Go there. Live there. Be among them. And don't jump to house to have. Don't be so transient. Stay there and proclaim the gospel. Embody the gospel. That's what I want you to do. There are people who ask every single week, email, Facebook, or leave things on our our voicemail. And I hope I don't want to offend anybody in here if you're from outside of the city. I don't want to offend you, but if the gospel offends you, whatever. But I don't want to offend you. But I'll say this anyway. (laughs) They they call all the time, or will email, or Facebook, whatever. Hey, we're from into the town. We want to come and evangelize in San Francisco. There's nothing wrong with that. That's a needed thing. It's a biblical thing. It's a gospel thing. But we say, how, how can we help? How can we evangelize, share the gospel and however they say it? How do we do that in San Francisco? And our answer is, we'll move here. Move here. If you want to do it, then live here. Live here and start where you live. Start where you go to work and where you drink your coffee Start where your favorite restaurants are and your favorite places to walk the streets. Start here. Live here. I am the longer that we we haven't lived here that long at all. The thing I found though, living here, is that residents of San Francisco have little tolerance for people who come here to evangelize from other places and then leave. I've even heard of them call it the Christian jihad. They've said this to us. That's just so jihad of you. Like you just come in, drop gospel bombs, and leave? What is this? Do you love this place? Do you want to stay in this place? That, in this city, what we've seen, is that is how you gain a voice. We want to live here. We want to, we love this place, and we love this, the people that live here. And we believe that Christ loves this place. And so we embody the gospel here. And it's a privilege to us. It's a great privilege. I just visited another city, which will be renamed, uh, remain nameless, and I was like, I cannot wait to get back to my city. <sighs> anyway, so this is what Jesus calls them to do. Stay there. Live there. Somebody wrote this to me not too long. Last week, they said this. When I, was, I think I, was, um, I said something about living here. And he, they wrote this, the place God calls you to is a place where your deep gladness and the world's deep hunger meet. I thought that was really cool. Where your deep gladness and the world's deep hunger meet. Where you live in a place, and if this is not that place, then find that place. A place that gives you deep gladness and, and the world's deep hunger for God meet. And you go there, and you give your life there, and you serve there. The What Jesus calls us to do is not to be tourists or terrorists. We're not to be tourists just passing through. And we're not to be terrorists like Jesus' jihad. That is not what Jesus has called us to do. We are, what it says, Jesus says, when you go there, enter their house and stay there. Don't just pass through. Jesus was concerned that his disciples should not appear to be on a merely social visit. Like, hello, I'm just visiting for the weekend, just telling you about Jesus, the gospel, I'm leaving now. One night with one family, one night with another family, he said, go there, stay there. And they weren't just to go there to take in the sights and the sounds and just leave. Evangelism and witnessing is not a vacation. It's not about us, it's not about what we like, it's about the gospel and the people who need to hear it. They were not on holiday, they were not on vacation, they were on mission. So if you live in this city, can I ask you something? Just, just, I'll just throw it out there. If you live in this city or in, this, in the Bay Area, can I ask you to stop being a tourist? And you're like, well, I don't, I don't, I don't go to the Fisherman's Wharf. I'm not a tourist. <laughs> that's, not, that's not what I mean. I mean this. Don't use this city for your own means. Don't use this city for your own career or portfolio or because you like the nightlife or to find yourself And you're like, I'm just giving my six months, my year, my two years, and I'm out of here. I can't stand it here. Just building my resume, and I'm out. Please, just for the sake of the gospel, stop. I believe in the providence and the sovereignty of God, and I believe that God called you here if you're living here. Would you live here for the sake of the gospel? Would you live here and embody the gospel where you work and where you live and where you serve If you live in Oakland, live there for the gospel's sake. Wherever you live, live there for the gospel's sake, not for your sake. I don't mean that you quit your job. I mean that you change your perspective. Change how you see this city. Change how you live in this city for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Jesus also says, don't be a terrorist. That means don't just go in, drop bombs, and leave. We're supposed to stay. They were supposed to stay at people's houses. They had, remember, Jesus sent them with no money, no food, no blankets, one tunic, that's it. Not two to keep you warm. One, they had to go and be dependent on that place they were going to. They had to go and enter in and say, can we stay at your house tonight? Don't you think, just for a second, if you thought about this, it changes your approach to witnessing if that person that you're witnessing to gave up their bed for you to sleep in that night. Just, doesn't it change things a little bit? That you know that I'm, I'm actually going to see this person in the morning that's like, I, I'm just going to say whatever I want to say. I'll never see them again in my life anyway. What's the big deal? Like you're actually staying at their home and they're feeding you meals and you're watching their kids and you're staying with them. It changes your approach You're deeply invested in them. You really want them to repent and to see Jesus. But the way that you go about it is totally, becomes totally different. Jesus didn't send them out with superficial power. They didn't look powerful. They looked weak. They didn't show up in the city saying, we don't need you, city, and we don't need, we don't like you. We're just here for a message and with the message and we're out of here. They went in and they became deeply invested in them, in this city. And then when they had to go into to a town, they did not trust in their supplies, and they did not trust in their training, but they trusted in the one who sent them. He sent them out in total dependency. They had to depend on God and the place they were going. That is humbling. There's great humility in witnessing. If you are not humbled as you witness and as you live out the gospel, you don't have the gospel, the real gospel. The gospel is humbling. It should humble us. That we, that we need this city. That we need God to intervene. We need to trust in God's Holy Spirit when we're here and living here. This it draws great dependency. We're not dependent upon our jobs merely. We're dependent upon God. And lastly, he sends them out in ministry. In verse 13 it says, They cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick, and he healed them. And they healed them. They weren't just sent out with a message, but with a ministry. They went to serve. They went to heal and anoint the sick and to cast out demons. The message and the ministry of Jesus was that the kingdom of God had come near in the person of Jesus. And now we're to proclaim and actually do something. This is interesting because when Jesus commissioned these disciples... He was putting in them and putting in us, in his people, to be actively involved with the welfare of mankind. He's like, I want you to go to a city and I want you to find people who are sick and I want you to heal them. I want you to find people that are tormented by demons and cast them out. I want you to be so deeply invested in mankind in that place that you're going. I want you to care for people who are marginal. Everything that you've seen me do, I want you to now, therefore, go and do. To be concerned socially and their felt needs and also their spirituality. Be deeply invested. John Stott says this about witnessing. We are sent into the world, like Jesus, to serve. For this is the natural expression of our love for our neighbors. We love, we go, we serve. And in this, we have, or should have, no ulterior motive. True, the gospel lacks visibility when we merely preach it, and lacks credibility if we who preach it are interested only in souls and have no concern about the welfare of people's bodies, situations, and communities. Jesus sends them out in radical ministry. How do we serve and love people? He has them deeply involved in the gospel, but also deeply involved in their condition. Both. And that's what it means. You're deeply invested when you start to live there among them and hear their stories and start to minister to them. That's how Jesus sends us out. But lastly, no matter how you serve, how you love, and how you communicate, you will be rejected. That's what that whole dust your feet off thing means. It means, it's a way of saying that they were accountable to God for what they heard. If they reject you, we reject you, reject your message, we hate you, you're dumb, get out of here. I don't recommend you take off your shoe and just like shake off and put them back on and walk away. Might communicate the wrong thing. But what they were to do was to go, now you're, it meant then, now you're accountable for what you hear. You heard it, right? You heard it. You're accountable now. Eternally accountable for what you just heard. And the thing is this, and what's cool about that is, it's not up to us to save It's not up to us to change. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. God does that work. He changes souls. He changes lives. He does that work, and people are accountable to that. And it will be hard. It will be difficult. There will be rejection. But let's be rejected for loving people and proclaiming the gospel, not being obnoxious with it. For living and embodying the gospel, not being obnoxious with the gospel. So the mission of Jesus, what he came here to do was to deliver us from the wrath of God as judge and to reconcile and bring us near to God as Father. And Jesus did this in the context of persecution, rejection, suffering, and death. That's how he did it. He died to remove our sin and to make us right before a holy God. He died in our place because we deserve death. No one is guiltless. No matter how, no matter how you grew up, if you grew up in a, in the church and you've ran far from it, no matter if you're the most spiritual person you know or you're the most secular person in this room, we all, none of us are guiltless. And the message of Jesus is that all men everywhere should repent, and that should be the most beautiful word in this church. That means we agree with God, that God is to be found right, we are, we're idiots, God's right. And we turn to Him and we look to Him and we repent. God, with the gospel, wants to redeem humanity. And we get to be a part of that wonderful work. And we get the privilege of being part of that wonderful work in this wonderful city, in this wonderful area. And it's a privilege and it's an honor. Would you please for the sake of the gospel, live here for the gospel's sake. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you. I, I ask God that, um, I know that we get people that, that come in and travel in and, um, and even come from outside of San Francisco and I pray that no one would take offense. I pray that wherever we live, no matter what, no matter where we live, we would embody the gospel where we live. I pray that you would change our hearts, God. Would you forgive us where for we have been lousy witnesses? Would you forgive us when we've spoke horribly about this place? Would you forgive us from the times we thought we cannot wait to get out of here? Would you forgive us, God? I pray, God, that we would see ourselves sent if we live here by you or sent wherever we live. We're sent by you. We are a, you are ascending God. I pray that those that are not yet following you are not following you at all. I pray, God, that you would, you would heal whatever hurts they have. Maybe the church has hurt them or a Christian friend has hurt them. I pray, Jesus, that you would be a, a comforter. And I feel compelled to pray for those that grew up and their dad was not there. stay day they hate. The last thing they want to hear about is Father's Day. I pray that you would heal people, Lord that you would set them free. Thank you that you are a God who is near the brokenhearted. Jesus, you sent your disciples out because you cared for humanity. You sent your disciples out not as Christian jihad, but as people that would embody the love, the forgiveness, the sacrifice of Jesus. Thank you that you love us, God. And I pray that the authority over all of this area that it is Jesus's, Lord, that you would draw people to yourself, God. That people would be saved, God. People would repent. We love you in your name.